0: Hello and welcome to the Talk Nerdy to Me podcast. In this episode, Professor Carrick discusses following gaze and observed gaze as a pointing cue to guide behavior. He addresses developmental concerns specific to maturation of the brain and the utilization of directed gaze. Further, he discusses the use of animal models and clinical applications. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good day, people. Uh, We've had a lot of requests to talk about different things in regards to uh, the social aspects of what we do in functional neurology. And one of the questions we had was very, very specific to looking at gaze. We know that we use different eye motions therapeutically and diagnostically, whether they be saccades or pursuits. And we've had a lot of people say, well, you know, how does this work? Uh, What are some of the other implications? How can I talk about this to other uh, professionals? Well, recently, uh, Stephen Shepard did some very interesting work on gaze-following behavior, really as a window into social cognition. And uh, his work is, is really pretty profound, and I think it really meets the the needs of our of our learners uh, and dr shepherd is at princeton university in the neuroscience institute at green hall <clears throat> now, what he he realizes is that generally individuals are going to be looking at where they're going to go, where they're going to attend, and where they're going to do some physical activities or some cognitive activities. And there's different animal models, including, of course, humankind, that use observed gaze as a pointing cue, and a pointing cue referred to as a uh, uh, deictic guide or deictic cue to guide behavior, and deictic is D-E-I-C-T-I-C. It's a term that is used uh, fairly fluently now in regards to specific uh, uh, pointing out or direction. Now, with, with all of us, with our patients, with us, the responses that we look at in regards to Uh, pointing cues, uh, deictic cues, are reflexive. We don't really have to think of them, and that is very, very important. They're also pervasive, which means to say they're going to pop up within a fraction of a second, and they're going to be independent of any relevance of the individual things that you might be wanting to do. So they really appear to, to undergrid what is to be considered our initial development not only of language, but of the entire theory of mind and the development of cognition. So all animals, both human and non-human, appear to share some basic gaze-following behaviors. And this really suggests that we've got a link in all life forms that gives us the foundations of what we would refer to be as our cognition of social integrity. And it also suggests that these individual traits might be found in non-human brains, which means that we might be able to develop animal models to understand the things that, that we want to understand about ourselves. So basically, uh, if you look at your patient and you really want to know what's happening with them and that, what do we do? We, we do what we do innately, that's to say we look into... Their eyes, and when we look into their eyes, we see a wonderful amount of things that are not limited to the the Cartesian visual aspect or their visual focus, but also things uh, uh, almost uh, of of the integrity of their of their soul, their private thoughts, their intentions, and and that. Uh, Oh that just that that uh, expression of of being alive, the messages that can be communicated just by the look of someone 's eyes, whether it be love, hate, or whatever it might be, things that you know to be true now it 's really less likely that we 've had the uh, evolution of distinct neural systems to process two very, very crucial types of gaze information, which would be direct gaze information and this uh, dictic or pointing gaze. It doesn't make sense. We have these divergent relationships. Now, we know that direct gaze, when a person looks at something, it's associated with uh, predation, of course, and with the likelihood that the individual is going to engage the observer or approach the the observer. This is what you see when something's going to uh, come and, you know, uh, jump on another animal, for instance. Now, direct gaze is an unambiguous stimulus. It has tremendous evolutionary uh, significance, and the neural responses are relatively uh, automatic. A lot of research has Gone on in the literature, specifically uh, the work of Senju S E N J U, and Senju's worked with uh, Johnson and Hazegawa and published things in the mid uh, 2000 right to the the present time. So that these the neural responses are automatic; they're innate responses, if we if we would, and we know that that innate or epigenetic responses are intimately linked with. Uh, with what you would want to see in your patients. An interesting paper by Batke talks about the innate responses of uh, direct gaze, and he published that in 2000, uh, in 2000 as well as uh, some work from Ferroni So if you start reading about the innate responses, there's a whole load of things in the literature different than the innate responses talked about in chiropractic uh, philosophy, but certainly uh, contemporary. So if you avert observed gaze then the direction is primarily relevant to an adapted life in a social group so that someone's looking at you you look at them and they look away we're going to find that uh things are very very social people don't like to be looked at or they can look at you or you know things that are that are uncomfortable or very very comfortable Now the deictic gaze, the pointing gaze, is going to really talk about your attention to the environment, the spatial aspects of your being and the things that are surround you. It gives you a uh, probability of planning or future actions, and it really uh, is going to define the, the actual focal point or the end point target of facial signals and our ability to attend to the, the same thing as an observed individual appears to be a, a foundation for more sophisticated social skills, uh, such as a theory of mind as described by Gomez in 2009. So conversely, we find that people, our patients or yourself, that are unable or uninterested. They really just don't care in sharing attention. They are understood to suffer symptoms of the autism spectrum disorders, and this is very, very important. They're just, they're just not there. And of course, our program in childhood developmental disease uh, addresses this. We know that when we look at the present scientific research, it it really embraces a whole load of things with with eyes and gaze following behavior is really central in a lot of current types of investigations. It's been reviewed. Over the last 20 years, uh, by uh, by a whole load of of different researchers, the ethological work by Emery and Clayton in 2009 uh, is very very uh, pivotal. We know with dystonics that their body image is changed, so that what they perceive to be an environment may be different. They may have an anterior shift of their center of pressure, and therefore have contraction of muscles that are not appropriate to their their realistic or their truthful uh, status versus their perceived status. So as clinicians, when we look at a person, we've got to interpret – their head and eye posture, their body posture. Then we've got to extract from these physical aspects the direction of their gaze and then imagine in our own mind or or mimic the, the patient's perspective and then try to relate their physical point of view, the things that you can see, to their very, very private internal mental state. And the the foundation for this, of course, is... Things that you see in hypnosis or other suggestive types of things, but from diagnostic integrity, the uh, gaze following is really foundational to your ability to be able to see what the patient is going to see. And in fact, gaze following is uh, present very, very early in human development. It's also present, as we said before, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, across many, many species. It relies upon. Uh, similar neural systems, uh, such that we can look at some animal models for some pathways and some integration. And then if we understand the pathways and the areas of integration, we can do things that would affect the very consciousness of individual people. We talked last year about the limbic cerebellum and psychoses and activation of the vermal areas, as with Jeffrey Schaumann's recent work in the 2000s uh, out of Harvard-specific to that limbic cerebellum and the dysmetria of uh, cognition well here's here's the deal when we look at the natural behavior of our of our patients, and we look at adult patients, for instance, these patients are going to use different um, gestures and gaze to manipulate the attention of others. And it's something simple as that, you know, if you, you walk in the airplane and you see someone and you have a smile at them and you, you get a smile back or that that sort of thing that may be considered to be a flirt or you give a big smile to someone and they look at you with, with disgust that happens sometimes, I have been dull. Anyways, um, the skills of using gestures and gaze to evoke a response in other people uh, is such that you need to have a mutuality of the awareness of that shared mental state of another person. So you smile at them, they smile, smile back. And it's very important, and you can utilize these very naturally in making people feel a little more comfortable with you as you examine them, with their fears, their foibles, they're putting themselves in your, in your care. So we have a uh, reflexive tendency to follow the gaze of others. You look at somebody looking at something, you're going to look there too. So we have a a couple of essential features that describe the adult use of uh, dick-dick gaze, the pointing gaze. And these, of course, are the sophistication of the whole machinery, the neuroanatomy, the neurophysiology, and the reflexogenic or the automatic types of activities involved with this gaze um, following. So when you look at your patients or when you look at your family and friends or all of humankind, we have got to realize that all of us understand that our gaze is going to constrain what someone else can see. It's also going to signal... what the the individual person finds to be very, very relevant in their visual field, and we we have a tendency to follow gaze. We know that when someone 's looking at something we 're going to look at something else if you If you ever do this, we used to do it for life. you sit there and you you look up at a building, and everyone 's going to stop and look up there too. So when we look at the understanding of another 's point of view, our understanding of the significance of the spatial relationships that an individual might have with dystonia or vertigo or with a parkinsonian case where they have a shift of a center of gravity Uh, the spatial relationships the 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 reality is that people can look uh, towards things that are outside of of our field of view and and we can see things outside of the patient's field of view and our awareness is such that gaze is really going to reflect the mental state of the gazer for instance someone who's just staring off into space and doesn't respond is going to have a lesser aspect of of cognition than other people and we see these in regards to the different stereotopies. Uh, of the individual uh, patients, especially in the ADHD group, in the Asperger's group, as well as those with Rett syndrome and adults with frontal types of lesions, so that when individuals are, are looking off into space or looking at their their gaze that is really not focused, that gaze interacts with other communicative signals and it can have. Uh, really, um, significance to inform somebody of what somebody's doing, or it can mislead somebody. For instance, if someone's bored with you, and they're not looking over you. You can make a misdiagnosis. So, we use gaze to inform. Our judgments, both about the environment that we share and about the person whose gaze that we are going to be observing. So, uh, when this happens, we have a tendency as clinicians to protest, to to take this and process it uh, really, really quickly and easily, and we do it without effort. And that automaticity that we use can be used against us, uh, and uh, it's it's really important people can feel you for instance if when you look at somebody that is doing a magic trick uh, in other words you're looking at the left hand and the right hand is doing something different well <clears throat> our focal aspect is such that we have a tendency to look where people are looking or look at what people are doing and as a consequence our focus gaze our directive gaze may be such that we may be robbing ourselves of the ability to see the blue foot uh, that goes uh, really, really blue when someone opens or closes. Closes the left hand, so gaze is very, very important for us clinically, but it also is an important communicative channel uh, between ourselves and our patients and all people in society. It is something that we look at as influencing our, our very early uh development, for instance you 're going to look at. Kids are looking at gaze at, you know, very, very early at a couple of months. And between seven and 11 months, they've got a whole load of increases in, in looking at things. And it's very, very exciting when you see a parent, all of a sudden, you see a kid is actually looking at someone or following someone's face or, or looking at something interesting or looking at a mobile um, type of turning carousel that's going around their, their individual uh, crib. Now, back in the 90s, there's a researcher, Butterworth, that suggested that infants first look in the direction of gaze by six months and then uh, towards targeted objects by a by year of age. And then they look geometrically to objects beyond their immediate view by the time they're 18 Months of age, and recent work by Thomas Sello uh, also supported this in 2004. Now, when we look at geometrical gaze following, this is pretty important because what it does is it implies a successful generalization between uh, the space of you and your environment, between the allocentric and egocentric reality of your person. So when you look at a, at an infant a little over a year of age, they're going to follow the gaze of individuals whose eyes are open and uncovered. If you look at something, a kid, by the time they their year, should be going and looking at what you are looking at. Uh, good research published by uh, the team of Brooks and Meltzoff really talked about that. And when you look at a little kid, you want to uh, look at them, see if they're looking at you, and then all of a sudden look at a different object and see if they follow your gaze. They should start doing this around a year. If they don't, then we suspect different type of retardation in that individual uh, types of development. They'll look at things specifically if you find things interesting. Or if you see a person that is looking at something that they perceive to be interesting, you are going to look there as well. So you're going to look at little kids that are about a year old. They're going to manipulate their attention by uh, pointing hand gestures, and they do these in in tandem with uh, either contact with their eyes, with an individual, or by directed gaze, this uh, deictic gaze, pointing gaze. Now, our people, you, I, all of our patients are going to follow gaze uh, within year after birth, if things are developing appropriately, they've got a good frontal cortex, their basal ganglia is doing well, they can maintain a visual access, so that within a year, they're going to be able to, to follow gaze, and then they're going to have uh, a little bit of maturation as their brain starts to go. Around the third year, they're going to have the Uh, the ability to have a explicit discrimination of gaze direction. And then uh, we're going to hold on for a whole lot of time. If you're interested in this development in infants, uh, really I'd recommend that you look at The work by Doherty uh, and a group um, published very, very recently, D-O-H-E-R-T-Y, if you search it. Well, what do these gaze behaviors uh, mean? It means to say that they're probably going to involve multiple substrates and that we're going to have distinct developmental time courses because kids are developing them at a certain period of time. At a very, very minimum, you need to have a a pathway that develops very, very quickly that will evoke a reflexive gaze following responses. It's got to develop uh, quickly. It occurs in all people, occurs in animals, so that you're going to have something that is uh, catalyzed. But as well as this fast adaptive pathway that allows the automatic reflexogenic system that we see so prevalent in society, we also have a probability of having another pathway that's slower developing for cognitive gaze comprehension. This is why uh, kids are going to be able to develop one thing by year and the other thing not for uh, three years, four years, five years. So when we look at at a kid around the age of 10 months, they're going to have joint attention abilities that predict the Rapidity of Subsequent Language Acquisition. This is very, very rich for us where we can look at kids and look at their tension in their eyes and we can make some sorts of predictions as to uh, how they're going to be able to read, how they're going to be able to learn. This has some societal excitement. And again, uh, Brooks and Meltzoff uh, recently have published some very, very interesting Papers that shows this type of relationship. Just as we know, there's a relationship between toe walkers and visual alexics. Uh, we know that poor joint attention skills are going to predict the severity of impairment from autism spectrum disorders and uh, a lot of the developmental types of activities. Uh, Some uh, recent work, if you look at uh, uh, gaze attention with autism spectrum work, uh, Rob Malol talks about this in very, very good uh, detail. Um, Nation and Penny published some interesting things uh, last year well, maybe a couple of years ago, 2008, I think, uh, specific to this individual subject. So when we look at the developmental evidence in humankind, it really tells us a whole load of things. It tells us that the initiation of and the response to joint attention are separable processes, which really make uh, contributions that are distinct and independent, uh, both to uh, the community development of a person within a group, how do they get along with other people, as well as their development of their ability to to speak and to understand uh, language. Very, very uh, exciting types of work. Now, this... um, Oh, is really what a developmental heterogeneity, and it really is going to include all of the contributions of the environment, the the contributions of the perceptions of the of the family unit, of the friends, of of uh, individual reflexes, of of the developing motivations to to develop social attention, interaction, behavior, cognition, learning, and all of these uh, different types of things. Now if we look at uh, differently developing mechanisms that are going to be occurring simultaneously it, it really is going to, to to boil down to something that will support giving us some orienting responses and some some cognitive types of interpretations that are evoked by by gaze, by where your eyes are and these mechanisms may differ across uh, phylogeny but they may be detectable uh, through uh, different testing of behaviors such as what we do with different psychophysical testing uh, in our patients, whether we're doing the motor aspects of tandem gait whether we're using different instruments of Wyatt, of BAD uh, the brown scales or a variety of different things now there's a certain inherent difficulty when we try to do animal experiments so that we can uh, look at these pointing directed gaze, the dictic social cues, than across animal species. Now, with humans, we pretty well know uh, what's happening when somebody is gazing in a direction. Way it's pretty easy to interpret if someone is looking at your butt or someone's looking at, at you know, the side of your nose. That maybe you're gonna you know rub it. Maybe you think you got something in it. So we can categorize these pretty well. Now, when we look at a person's head and you look at their visual aspects, they're they're going to point towards regions of the environment that they're going to attend to and and when we look at gaze following we also look at postural reality and um, we're going to look at where the hands go uh, when people talk are they animated they're going to point in the direction of intended movement or, or action for instance if you're you're looking for a certain address of a street or a certain store and you get someone in the car all of a sudden they see it and they go there it is and they put their hand right in front of your eyes and it's going like what the heck are you doing well these are these reflexogenic activities of body and gaze that are hard linked now the the human hands and eyes are of course are of course different, right? One is is uh, is looking at a motor pathway that is as a consequence of where you believe you are. The other is a motor pathway that allows a sensory type of experience. So we've developed a sense of of vision. And very, very uh, distinctive uh, individual eyes with distinctive uh, visual patterns. We all know how to uh, measure blind spots so that the blind spots or the areas you just don't see are representative of things in your mind. And you're not going to be uh, attending to gaze in those individual areas. So we all have a very well-defined uh, fovea. And, and this is a, a something when you do your ophthalmological examination, you look at the fovea, you're coming in nasally, it's temporal, it's small, it's single, it's circular, it's uh, pigmented, it's just different. Well, if you look at that specialization of the human fovea to allow you to see, and then you look at the hands which point where the fovea is going, we have a similar specialization because we don't have to walk on our hands anymore. We're not running around on four legs. We are bipedal. We can stand up and therefore the hands are free. They are emancipated from uh from support and locomotion so we can use them to the exclusion of of other types of effectors such as uh, language or speaking. We can utilize our hands we can give gestures and in many lower uh, animals or different animals we'll say we don't want it to be hierarchical i think it's it's contemporary humanism to look at the beasts of the field as our neighbors and when we look at different animals uh, quite different perceptual and motor interfaces are going to to be more dominant because they're not human they they, they, they you know they're they're locked in for instance when you look at a bird uh, you see these birds are sitting there, boom, that head just turns uh to one side to to see uh their nest or what they're going to to eat and, and things like this, whereas human beings can do a little bit of a a different deal we 're going to have greater mobility of our eyes hard linked to cerebellar types of of pathways, so when we look at individual humans, we can understand the purposeful uh following of gaze this uh dictic social cues that apply to us, may not apply to, to other species, and we can make some mistake in these observations, but we know that um, animals that live in their own groups have got to Coordinate their movements with uh, other people, whether it be birds flying or or buffaloes uh, that are migrating, or dolphins. And we also know that animals that hunt other animals, predators, are going to have to coordinate themselves with the movements of their prey. And and uh, it's probable that in order to do all these things, that. Other animals have got to be able to be aware of the attention of the intended movements of of others. For instance, if you're if you're boxing someone or you're fighting with someone, and and uh, you know you always look at their eyes, and and you can you, someone tries to fake you out and tries to get you at the cheap shot, and everyone's got a little bit of a uh, of a tell, and we can use this. You know, very, very, uh, very, very well. So um, really, it's it's important. We're, we're going to uh, realize that the uh, individuals that we look at in our patient population have some majesty that we can utilize to see what's happening with their brain and development and all these different things. So now we know that uh, higher uh, animals, if we look at primates, for instance, you know, apes and monkeys, uh, they're going to shift their attention in response to human gaze and and gesture. But lower primates, uh, such as uh, uh, capuchins and uh, all the macaws and, and things, are, are not going to be able to, to do that. So some of the primates have been able to follow gaze geometrically and they really are going to have a limited understanding of another's uh, point of view such as you see in these little spider monkeys and and things like, uh, things like that. So when we look at what we do, we're going to have certain cues in our patients and ourselves and these cues are very important because we can research other animals uh, such as non-primate species in research to look at their uh diectic types of cues uh, for instance you know your dog or your cat or or different types of uh, of things so besides these primates and domesticated animals uh, we know that some some birds and marine animals also have been able to respond to dectic signals uh, if you ever swam with the dolphins for instance we know that you know the crows and magpies they're really uh pretty pretty cool they can have advanced abilities using tool use and building of uh nests and and perhaps some mirror recognition and uh also the ability to to follow human gaze Cues. If you ever looked at a bird, it's you know they're going to take off just before you go to move. They seem to be able to to know uh, what is actually uh, going to happen there. Well, I think this is very exciting. I'm glad that you asked me to talk about this. So let's continue next week and talk a little bit more uh, about this reality of how um, we look at human gaze and what the developmental aspect is and uh, and how we can look at some different experiments that will help us understand what we're looking at with our patients and also be able to see what our weaknesses are so that we might be able to do some marvelous, marvelous things. Okay, well, let's, uh, let's listen to some tunes for you today because you're listening to this, and we'll get on with it. Thanks very much, and we'll see you next time. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to make any suggestions for any future podcast topics, please visit the Contact Us page on CarrickInstitute.com.